0: So this morning, we're going to find ourselves looking at Psalm 2 because what's interesting about Psalm 2, last week we talked about how uh, the book of Psalms is the uh, most quoted uh, Old Testament book that's quoted or alluded to in the New Testament. What's interesting is that Psalm 2 is the most quoted psalm that's quoted from the New Testament. And so what what we find here is that often the best interpretation of for scripture is scripture itself and so the use of Psalms so many times in the New Testament helps us to accurately understand and interpret Psalm 2 the fact that uh, as we look at New Testament uh, inclusions of the Psalm helps to give us insight into things that don't naturally stand out to us if we were just reading Psalm 2 independently, you know, all on its own. I'm going to give you a couple of examples of where Psalm 2 is referred to in the New Testament. Jesus alludes to it in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, verse number 23. In Matthew chapter 17, Uh, God cites a portion of Psalm 2-7 at both the baptism and the transfiguration of Christ. In John chapter 1 verse number 49, uh, Nathanael recognized Jesus as being the fulfillment of Psalm 2 verses 6 and 7. Next, chapter 13, Paul interprets uh, Psalm 2-7 as referring to Jesus' resurrection. And then the author of Hebrews references verses 7 and 8 in his introduction to Jesus in Hebrews 1. And so although there are no hints of authorship that's contained within the psalm itself, well, Acts chapter 4 identifies the author of Psalm 2. In Acts chapter 4, verse number 25, it says, Who, by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people devise futile things? So thankfully for Acts chapter 4, we now understand David as being the author of Psalm 2. And so what we're going to find here is that typically our response to tragedies, to evil events, to heartaches and heartbreaks would be characterized in the question of Why? Why does God allow evil and suffering to exist in our world? Why does He allow for humans to stand in opposition and rebellion against Him? Why does God allow them to curse and profane His holy name? Why does God allow the the wicked to reject and rebel against Him? Why does He allow the Innocent to suffer at the hands of the wicked. Have you ever asked questions like this in life? You see, why is the question that begins this psalm? And in this psalm, the Lord offers His response. See, the answer is found not by looking at the world around us, but by looking forward to the fulfillment of God's divine plan for the human race. And so Psalm 2, the theme for Psalm 2, is the Lord's plan for humanity. And so let's start by looking at the people's rebellion against God. That's verses 1 through 3. It says, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. So here, David is speaking for all the people who are just amazed at man's boldness in attempting to rise up against God. Not only that, uh, they're amazed at God's seeming silence in in response or non-response to man's rebellion. And so David asks, why do people rebel against God? Why do they even try when they have absolutely no chance to prevail? Why does God allow them to continue in their opposition towards Him? So in these three verses, we see several things that stand out. First of all, notice how the nations rage against him. Nations is a term that's used to describe people that are united. Perhaps they're united by geographical boundaries. They could be united with a common language, maybe a political government or a common ethnicity. So so they're united. They're a people group. And so these nations are in an uproar and they rage against God. And then it goes on to say, it goes from nations to peoples. It says peoples. Peoples emphasizes the individuals who, who form the nation. Notice it's used in the plural form. So in this verse, it stresses how people from various nations are willing to cross geographical political, even social lines in order to form an alliance against the Lord. See, even enemies will set aside their national or political interests in order to form an alliance against God. And what are they doing? It says that they're devising a vain thing. That word divine is the answer to your, devise is the answer to your homework assignment that you were given last week. Your goal was to find the word "hagah" in Psalm 2. Well, that's the word translated as devise. So it's the exact word that's used in Psalm 1, verse 2, that's translated as meditate. It's that Hebrew word "hagah." This word portrays how people will put their heads together in order to form a strategy to go against the will of God. I want you to notice the contrast here. In Psalm 1, verse number 2, a blessed person meditates, haggaz, on the word of God and takes delight in his word. Here, the rebellious person despises God's Word. Despises the Word of God and haggas on how to escape and avoid it. So here we're given a reality check. Efforts to rise up in rebellion against God are in vain. It is a waste of time, energy, and effort. No one can prevail against the mighty hand of God. So here, the psalmist is amazed that people actually think that they can be successful in their attempts to go against God. And so the nations rage. The peoples plot. Then it says that the rulers oppose Him. Not only do they oppose Him, they oppose Him and His anointed one. I hope you can see that this is a picture of the Messiah. The, the leaders of nations stir people to rise up in rebellion against not just God, but against His anointed one as well, against His Son. In verse number 2, the word anointed means one who is consecrated for a specific purpose. One who is consecrated for a specific purpose in the Old Testament Several people are referred to as being anointed, for instance. In Leviticus chapter four, verse number three, we see that uh, term referred to priest, the anointed priest. In First Kings 19 verse 16, it's referred to the prophets. So anointed priests, anointed prophets. And then First Samuel 24, verse number six, there were anointed kings. So there were anointed uh, priests, prophets, and kings. But the Hebrew word anointed can also be rendered as Messiah. In Daniel chapter 9, Jesus is revealed as the anointed, the Messiah. Right? And so, in the New Testament, it's the word Christ. Christ is the New Testament equivalent to this word. Which is why I, I... I believe that this text is clearly referring to Jesus. This would be referred to as a messianic psalm. It has the truth for the moment, but it's also pointing towards the Savior. And so we see that the nations rage against God. The peoples come together, forming an unholy alliance, and try to plot against God. The rulers oppose God, and try to lead its people, to opposing God and His Anointed One. then The citizens have just one goal. The goal of the peoples is to break God's rule, to, to set themselves or to release themselves from God's binding commandments or His cords, according to the text. So the unholy objective of the nations, peoples, and rulers is incredibly bold. They passionately desire to break free from God, to to remove themselves from His authority over their lives. Rebellious people hate God. They hate His Son. They hate His commands. In fact, they see the commands of God as enslaving them. They, they, They believe that they're chained against their will. The, the divine laws of God are, are given to prevent them from pursuing what it is that they want. That's the mindset of the wicked. This is also Satan's clever strategy that he's been using from the very beginning. Go back and read in Genesis chapter 3. You see that the serpent whispers into the ear of Eve, suggesting to her that she was bound, that she was restricted, that she was chained by by God establishing a command not to eat of that particular fruit. So Satan's temptation ignited within Eve that fleshly desire because she wanted to do as she pleased without being interfered with, without being influenced or restricted by God. And as a result, sin enters into Humanity, And this has been the same strategy and technique that Satan's been using ever since the fall of man. But here's the thing. God's commands are not enslaving. God's commands are given in order to drive us to a Savior. His commands are, are born out of His great love for us over His desire for us to experience only the best in life. And so His commands are, are boundaries that He established in order to protect us from the deadly dangers of sin. Because ultimately we know, we've seen, we've experienced the reality that sin destroys lives. Sin wrecks marriages and families. Sin breaks up homes. Sin brings enormous headaches, heartaches, pains, and frustration into our lives. And so people who defiantly climb over the the fence of, of God's commands in order that they might play in the streets of sin, they're the ones that ultimately are enslaved. They may think that they are free to do as they choose, but ultimately they will find themselves chained to those sins and unable to escape the consequences from that sin. So true freedom is found within the perimeters of God's commands. There we are in Christ. We are free from the wages of sin. There we we don't have to worry about Getting caught. There we don't have to worry about keeping our stories straight. There uh, we are free to experience the, the, plea, the peace and the blessings of God. It is sin that enslaves us and Christ that sets us free. And so having looked at the people's rebellion against God, now we see the Lord's plan for the universe. Let's pick up in verse number 4. Says He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then He will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury, saying, But as for me, I have instilled my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Now the first speaker in the psalm was David. But now another speaker appears. The second speaker of the psalm Is God. Amazingly, the omnipotent creator of everything personally responds to David's question of why. And in his response, allow me to point out a few things that that stand out. First of all, I want you to notice the posture of God. The text says, He sits. Other translations renders that as, He is enthroned. He sits or He is enthroned. Being enthroned is a sign of authority. It refers to occupying a ruling position. So there is a very powerful image that's being projected here. The one who is enthroned in heaven is completely secure in his power and his position. He is neither threatened. Nor is he concerned about the rebellion of any individual or collection of individuals that might attempt to join forces and rebel against him. He's not worried about that at all. Notice that the one that is enthroned is not snapping into action. He's not scrambling to their feet in order to devise a plan. No, in fact, he sits He doesn't even have to rise to to deal with them. No, He sits. He is enthroned upon the throne. He sits in His power. He sits in His authority. And neither His power or, or His authority is challenged. Secondly, He laughs. His laughter is another expression given to us to show us that he's not shaken, nor is he disturbed by the people's rebellion. It's not a nervous laugh. He's not nervous about their plans or their schemes against him. I believe that there is a sense in which his laughter is for the benefit of his people. His laughter is for the benefit of his people because his laughter gives us assurance and it reminds us that God is in authority. That God is a mighty fortress, right? That He will not be shaken, He will not be moved, He will not be disturbed. And then notice also that, that God, God's amusement turns uh, and is focused at their falling. So his, his laugh is not a mocking laugh. Uh, no, the text says that the Lord scoffs at them. That is, He he scoffs and He he laughs at them. Their arrogance is sadly humorous because how could the created rise up against the Creator? How could they ever think that they could be successful over the omnipotent Creator? In verse number 4, we we see the other contrast to Psalm one. Psalm one one we see that the ungodly scorn God and His law. Here it is God that scorns the ungodly in their plans. So it absolutely amazes me that people are bold enough to think that they can prevail against God. And then the uh, the fourth thing that stands out is it's God's response to the rebellious. Ultimately, his amusement turns to anger. Look at verse 5. Verse number 5, Then He will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. So he fiercely addresses them and he strikes terror in their hearts. Uh, That word to terrify means to tremble inwardly. So although His declaration does not immediately come to pass, it hangs as an ominous storm cloud over the heads of the wicked. It's going to happen. God will prevail. Any attempts to rise up against Him will all fail. And so God, now He's going to reveal what His plan is. And that's in verse number 6. But as for me... I've instilled my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Notice that it doesn't talk about a king. Not even saying the king. But here he's saying my king. Right? God has designated a king that will rule over all of creation. And that king is the King Jesus. There's no other king. My King is Jesus. And if we fail to see Jesus throughout this psalm, then we've missed so much of its message. We can see Jesus in verses 1-3 through about the death of Jesus. Verse 7, we can see it referring to the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 6, it refers to the ascension and the enthronement in glory. Verses 8 and 9. Talking about Jesus and His return and His righteous rule over the earth. And so as we wait for the return of King Jesus, right? we are to take comfort in knowing that the King has already been crowned in heaven. And in His perfect timing, King Jesus will be enthroned on earth as He is in heaven. And He will rule over his entire creation. Verse 7 says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Oh, it's interesting. Now we have a, a third voice that's heard in this song. And that third voice that's heard in the psalm is none other than the eternal voice of the pre-incarnate Son of God. Jesus is speaking here. So as Jesus speaks, He clearly reveals what God the Father had just spoken about in verse number 6. And so the Son of God is revealing a conversation between the Father and Himself. In that conversation, a decree was given. And that decree was that His Son would be given as a sacrifice For the sins of humanity. And not only that. That God would exalt this son. This king of kings. He will exalt him as Lord of lords. Ruler and reigner over creation. Over all people. Jesus is declaring the decree of God's will. The decree that specifically appointed him as king. The decree that was officially adopted and enacted in heaven before the very foundation of this world. We see this elsewhere in Scripture. For instance, John chapter 17, verse number 24 says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Then in 1 Peter chapter 1, it says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, for He was foreknown... Before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for your sake, for the sake of you. So now, going back to Psalm 2, verse number 7, there's a phrase in here that often gets misinterpreted, especially by cults. And that phrase is the phrase, today I have begotten you. Some will say that this proves that Jesus was not eternally existing. That He is a a creation or the offspring of God. However, this is not consistent. This view would be contrary to what is found throughout the Scriptures. For instance, Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 Verse number 15 says, he, talking about Jesus, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Then it says the firstborn of all creation. Again, people will misinterpret this. They'll attempt to say, see, there it is again. The firstborn of all creation means that Jesus was a created being. No, that is not what that verse means. Jesus was not the first person created because He Himself is the Creator of all things. The firstborn of all creation means that Jesus was prior to all creation. So Jesus is not a created being. Jesus is eternally God. That's why verse 16, Colossians 1 goes on to say this: For by him, by Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. by the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Jesus and for Jesus. And so let's go back to Psalm 2. So then what exactly does it mean to be begotten? What is Psalm 2 verse 7 trying to say to us? Many people will believe that this is a reference to the incarnation of Christ. They simply believe that this is talking about when Jesus became a man through the miraculous birth of Mary so that he might fulfill God's will, God's plan by dying for humanity. And there is support, scriptural support for this position because it is consistent with how the word begotten is used in places like John chapter 1, verse 14, John 3 16, John 3 18, as well as in 1 John chapter 4, verse number 9. Now, others view it not as the incarnation of Christ, but really speaking about the resurrection of of Christ. Now this view is based primarily upon texts like Acts chapter 14 verses 30 through 37. No, that's Acts 13, not Acts 14. Acts 13 verses 30 through 37. As well as like in Revelation. Revelation chapter 1 verse number 5. So is it talking about the incarnation? Or is it talking about the resurrection? <laughs> Here's the deal. Either way may you know that Jesus Christ always was, always is, and always will be our hope for heaven. That's it. So either way works. There's no conflict between either position. Jesus is the only hope for mankind. And so in verses 8 through 9, now we're going to see what God's promise is to His Son. Right? He says in verse number 8, Ask of me, And I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Notice, first of all, God's promise to his son was a glorious inheritance. God promises to give him the nations as his inheritance, but also the very ends of the earth, as his possession. So Jesus left his exalted position in heaven so that he might become a man and give his life as a sacrifice in order to redeem both humanity and the earth. I think we often forget how the earth is also cursed because of sin. And the earth is in need of redemption. And the only hope for the earth is Jesus. Jesus is the Redeemer. And we see this in, in both Genesis 3 and Romans chapter 8. And So because of His sacrifice as the only begotten Son of God, Jesus will inherit the earth that He died to redeem. Even more so. John also promised his son the power to conquer and to rule over all nations. That's in verse number nine. It says that the nations will be broken with a rod of iron. They will be completely shattered like a clay pot. In other words, Jesus' rule ultimately will be of one of power and judgment. Make no mistake, he will rule. Because Jesus is God. Jesus is King. Jesus is a conqueror. Right? Uh, which, which brings us to, to the final section of the psalm. And, and, and in this, we find the Lord's warning to everyone. He says, now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. In other words, saying, you've been warned. God's word has revealed what the future holds, how this world will end, who will prevail through eternity. His word reveals what will happen to those that reject Him. Oh, it's pretty clear. Jesus will reign and those who reject Him will suffer. It's pretty clear. Either submit to the King, live in His glorious presence for eternity, or reject and deny Him and suffer. So in view of the coming triumph of the Lord, wise people Well, serve the Lord. Well, serve the Lord with fear. Verse 11 says, Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Other translations rendered this verse as serve the Lord with fear. So what does it mean to serve the Lord with fear? Well, first of all, may you understand that it's an attitude. It's an attitude that demonstrates the highest awe, respect, or reverence to God. So those who fear the Lord recognize His holiness, recognize His power, recognize His wisdom, His His judgment, even His wrath. But for those who, who don't have a relationship with God through faith in the Son, man, that word fear takes on a totally different meaning. It includes dread, panic terror so so not only is the fear of the Lord an attitude it's also an action see when we fear the Lord we're submissive and obedient we recognize His, his authority and we humbly bow down to that authority and we submit to it we're submissive not because we have to but because we want to We're submissive and and we're obedient because we, we appreciate the sacrificial love that was demonstrated when Christ died on the cross because of us. And so anything less than full submission, anything less than complete obedience is not a genuine fear of the Lord. And so we are to worship the Lord with reverence. We're to rejoice with trembling. Make no mistake, we have so much to rejoice about. For instance, we rejoice because the Lord loves us. And He made the ultimate sacrifice in order to redeem us. We rejoice because the Lord is gracious and kind. We rejoice because He provides abundantly for us and He cares for our needs. We rejoice because it is a great privilege to serve the King of Kings. We rejoice because we're blessed to be part of His kingdom. A kingdom that will triumph over all other kingdoms of this world. We rejoice Because in Christ, we are on the winning side. We get to share in His immeasurable glory in His great kingdom. We have a lot to be joyful about. So David, as a psalmist, he wraps it up in in verse number 12. And he says, Do homage to the Son, that He might not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. So do homage to the sun. It's the same thing. Some of your translations might render it as submit to him. Or even more beautifully, uh, some translations say to kiss the sun. I, I, I love the, the translation, kiss the sun. I think it's beautiful, because uh, to kiss the Son, a kiss is a symbol of affection and submission. So kissing the Son is the act of surrendering your life unto Him. So the only way that we can approach God and enter into His kingdom is through His Son. Jesus is the only way to the Father. But I want you to notice something here. It is the wrath of Jesus that will come against the enemies of God. You see, today Jesus is a loving Savior. Jesus is a loving Savior who offers forgiveness, grace, and mercy. But on that day, He will change. He will transition. From a loving Savior to a righteous judge. The gentle lamb who willingly laid down his life will become a fierce lion who will devour his enemies. And the only shelter, the only safe place from this judgment is in Jesus. That's why the psalm ends with the invitation of to take refuge in Him. It says, how blessed are those who take refuge in Him. So the personal plea of the Spirit of God is that all of us would take refuge in Christ. You see, if we do not submit to Jesus, we're condemned to perish. That's an eternal destruction and separation from God in a place of torment. It's awful... And the only rescue from the fire is Jesus. So Jesus will either be your Savior, your Redeemer, or He'll be your Judge. May you know that there is no refuge from Jesus. There's only refuge in Jesus. Put your faith, your trust, in Jesus, God's King, decreed before the foundation of the world to give his life as a sacrifice to redeem those that would believe in him. And may you kiss the Son. Submit all of your lives unto him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you because you are worthy. You are the anointed one, the Lord of heaven's armies. Oh, Jesus, we we praise you because you are worthy of our fear, worthy of our reverence, worthy of respect and obedience. Because the whole earth is your possession. You reign as Lord over this world in which we live. So we thank you that you remain our refuge when our faith is weak, when the nations rage, when the church, its leaders, and its members are under attack. Holy King, we surrender our lives, our desires, our pride, our relationships, our possessions, our spiritual gifts. We surrender our plans to your rule, King Jesus. Even though the nations are in an uproar and rage against you, we know that one day all people will bow before your holy name. So Jesus, grant us the wisdom to detect our own rebellion against you. And grant us the desire to walk in obedience to your word and to your will. And as we encounter the, the fear of man, the temptation to walk astray or even the discouragement of unmet expectations help us to trust you as our refuge and our strength in this very moment guide us in recognizing confessing repenting of our sins and move us to make decisions and commitments that honor and glorify you We ask these things in your most holy and precious name.